You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles. Hopefully, everybody is having a good week so far. A lot of positive energy, a lot of good vibes your way. I had a a very fun I guess you want to call it a, a long weekend, and I'm going to kind of share uh, share kind of what we did this weekend, right? Uh, we've I always talk about getting kids outside and how it can change them, and how it it can change negative attitudes and things like that. So um, we live in Eastern Iowa, and my father-in-law has this camper that he's set up in northeastern Iowa and it's in the driftless region of Iowa Wisconsin Minnesota you know there's a lot more terrain it's in the Mississippi River Valley it's absolutely gorgeous up there so uh, we don't get to go up there uh, as much as we like but it's always a really good time Uh, every summer I can that I can remember when I was a kid my dad would take us up there we'd go camping uh, we would go on these these hikes on some of these really cool trails. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Indian burial grounds like effigy mound mounds, and uh, just really cool. There's there's all these natural creeks uh, and streams that run through the area with trout, and so a lot of time spent up there when I was a kid, and it was really awesome. So my father-in-law has a, a trailer up there, and we go up, and when we go up, we we tend to do some fishing. And fishing, uh, like I've mentioned in some of these other podcasts, is an absolutely great way to introduce kids to the outdoors and nature and, and getting them into this hunting and fishing lifestyle for one reason, and it's because they're, it's active, right? You cast, 
you reel in, you put the worm on, you take the fish off. You um, you got to teach them a little bit of patience, but you're not cannonballing into it like a whitetail hunt or a turkey hunt where they have to be quiet and they have to be still. In fishing, they can be loud, they can jump around and things like that. So there's a farm pond up there that we have access to, and it's one of those farm ponds that's just stacked. It has... Every time you throw your worm in, you're almost guaranteed a, a a fish. And we were catching some nine-inch bluegills. I think the biggest bluegill we caught, this is no joke, I think it was in that 11-inch mark. So some big, fat bluegills. And uh, the guy who owns the farm, I don't even, I think, honestly, the last people that, that fished it were us. And there are it's crystal clear water so you can see the fish which gets the which gets the kids excited hell it gets me excited they have really good bass in there they have crappie in there big crappie they have uh, big bluegills they even have walleye no joke in this in this pond and it's it's a it's a pretty big pond it's mowed around they keep it mowed and uh it's fun right so the kids you know we're just ripping lips it's one of those it's one of those fishing uh, days where all I'm doing, I don't even think I, that first day, I don't even think I picked up a, uh, maybe the last 10 minutes as the kids were starting to get tired and, and bored of doing the same thing. Uh, I, I made a couple casts and caught some bass, but really it was me putting worms off, getting the pliers in there, getting the hooks out, throwing the fish in the cooler. And, just having a really good time, really fun time. And that's, that's kind of what we do, right? Then we go out for dinner or we'll pack a lunch and we'll go hiking. I took the the kids to a park one day we played, um, went out in nature. I think we did one little small hike and, and, uh, that kind of stuff. (laughs) So, uh, awesome. Very fun weekend. Now the next day we got on my daughter and my, uh, my daughter and my wife got on the boat and we hit the Mississippi or they hit the Mississippi river with my father-in-law. And so that's a, 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 that's a different style of fishing, right? It's not just bobbers. You have current to deal with. It's very difficult unless you're in the backwaters kind of fishing for uh, pan fish in the snags and whatnot. But, um, they went out and they tried to fish for some, uh, you know, some smallmouth. I think that's what was biting. They're looking for walleye. They were looking for uh, bass. Really, anything that was biting, and it was it, it was rough, right? So, my my wife and my daughter get out there. My my daughter actually catched caught catched actually caught a just under a, a rip for a river fish. It's really good. Just under a three pound smallmouth and her in the picture she's holding it up and it looks gigantic and so she had fun reeling that in and it was jumping all over the boat from what they what they showed what they told me and then they dropped them off at the boat landing and so then (laughs) then we got me and my son my oldest son went on the boat and we were went out to try to do some fishing well my son isn't he's only seven he's not as advanced as my daughter is as far as casting is concerned as far as how to work a lure or a crankbait um he's a bobber fisherman right now so my father-in-law's sitting here talking to my son about hey check you know here's how you do it you gotta flip it towards the bank you want to get it in those rocks and you just want to 
work the tip, work the tip. And he, my son, he's not even paying attention at this point. He's just looking off into space <laughs> as, as most seven-year-olds would do. And so my, uh, my father-in-law goes, Hey, did you understand what I'm saying here? And, uh, and I already have said about 10 times, uh, this is a little too advanced for him. This is pretty much just a boat ride for him, but my son wanted to fish. So hell he got a fishing pole. And so my father-in-law hands him the fishing pole. He wheels back, he casts, and it's right into a tree. <laughs> I don't know, like fishing with kids can be so much fun, but at the same time, it can be a nightmare, especially when you're fishing with someone who's not used to being around kids all the time, like my father-in-law is. Uh, he he it's, he's, he's the father of an only child, so he hasn't been around kids until from the time my daughter left until or my, my my wife left until we started having grandkids and so he's not a patient person anyway and so he's like mac that's not what i told you i'm just like hey man we got to do whatever we got to do so give him something just to drop off the boat and uh and so the the rest of the that time in the boat i ended up just giving him my phone which defeated the purpose but it was either that or fight snags and just like tearing up uh, fishing poles and things like that. So I had to I had to make an executive decision and give him my phone for a little bit. He fished for a while and he was sitting and watching us for a while, but eventually he got bored. I gave him my phone for a little bit. I was able to do a little fishing. I caught a couple smallmouth and then we the next day it rained, so we ended up going into uh uh, going into Wisconsin to lacrosse, doing a couple things there, having lunch, and uh, then came back and ended ended the uh, vacation, I guess you would call it, at a, at a farm, the same farm pond, just a catch and release day where we would just catch the fish and throw them back, and uh, man, just a lot of fishing. And what I'm really jacked about is my daughter's always kind of been a you know into this. She can cast herself. She started to put the worm on by herself. Hell, she even took a couple fish off and uh, threw them back herself. But my son, uh, I don't know what it is about my oldest son, but he is he's getting jacked about fishing now. And so when he was there, he's like, dad, let's do this. Let's go catch some fish. Right. He's giving me knuckles. He's pounding me and he's like, yeah, all right. All right. You know, and, and, and the bobber would go under and he'd rip it and he'd reel it in. And then, uh, I would, I had to keep reminding him, buddy, get your tip up and reel. He would just get, he'd set the hook, make two cranks on the reel and then walk backwards until the fish was, uh, on the shore. And so, uh, just seeing the excitement in his face, man, he was, he, he loved it. And I'm glad because last summer you would have thought it was something different. He, he wasn't going to like it, but this summer something changed, man. He even, he even was touching worms and fish by himself, wanting to throw them back in and, and put the worm on the hook. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm happy about that. Cause I didn't know what direction he was going to start to go as far as the outdoors were concerned. So, uh, so I'm pretty happy with that. And overall it was an excellent weekend and, uh, and we got to spend some time with the family. We got to get outside. The weather was gorgeous. We stayed away from the TV. We stayed away from, uh, for the most part, we stayed away from the uh, the tablets and the phones and things like that. And uh, just got to spend some time with each other and spend some time out in nature. And I think uh, we all needed that. So uh, um, I'm pretty happy 
about that. So there's a little recap of this past weekend. Now, as far as uh, one last thing, if you are going to go fishing with kids, you may not even don't even think about trying to catch fish yourself because if you're trying to multitask and fish with a kid and then also try to fish yourself good luck buddy because it's uh it is a chore and you need to have your big boy patient pants on because if you don't you're just going to get frustrated so my advice if anybody's listening to this if you're going fishing with kids just focus on the kids you don't even if you want to go fishing and and catch fish do it by yourself but if you're bringing your kids with you man just focus on the kids and make sure that they have a good time because uh in 10 years you know when they're older and he's you know 17 or or you know in his teens or early 20s uh that's what i want like all i'm doing is building a foundation for a time when the two of us can go and we don't have to worry about you know helping each other out that kind of thing so anyway this episode is awesome all right so on the seven on the 700th episode that we had uh what two weeks ago now uh we had kevin martone on and he is a mental health expert so he's been he we talked about mental health if you haven't listened to that go do that on this episode the dude's also a bow hunter right he loves whitetail hunting and so on this episode we talk it's basically a hunter profile we talk about where he hunts how he hunts uh we talk about Massachusetts as a whole, New Jersey, kind of the places where he grew up hunting, the terrain, the wetlands, the marshes, the big woods, all that stuff mixed with him living close now to Boston. He lives, uh, you know, west of Boston and hunting in a, on a piece of property that is not only pressured by other hunters, but it's also pressured by hikers and other nature lovers, right? So all those things that he has to deal with, we talk strategy, we talk conservation because on this piece of property, he is also the deer or the hunting coordinator. And he works directly with a wildlife biologist to discuss and talk about the deer uh, numbers and the deer uh, management on that particular piece of property. And we get into all the details of that. It's a really it's a really cool episode. So we talk conservation, we talk hunting, we talk uh, strategy, we talk, uh, I think we even have a, a short story about grandparents and cigarettes and coffee and things like that. So it's fun, it's educational, it's entertaining. It checks all the boxes. Hopefully you guys enjoy. Before we get, get into it though, you know I gotta do some commercials here. So if you are looking for a saddle, and, and like I said, man, I, I still have a lot to get into with uh, my tethered saddle, but I know the guys uh, over there at tethered. And I know what I like about all these companies that I work with is the people who I work with uh, in these, uh, I guess you want to call it an advertising campaign, are participants in the the space that they have their business, right? So the guys at tethered, why did they create a saddle? Because they love hunting out of a saddle right and so they've built this community around them which there's so much good information over at tethered that you can uh, um, uh, that you can go and pull from if you want to learn how to saddle hunt if you want to you know not, if you have a saddle you want to learn tips and tricks on the gear they have all that stuff over there and on top of that they have some really well-built equipment i've had an opportunity now to test it out and the platform that I'm going to use is the XL platform. The set I have the, I guess the one guy guy called it the Fat Man's, uh, the Fat Man saddle. Uh, it's a it's a bigger model, but it's more comfortable. And so 
I'm, I'm not jumping into the minimalistic saddle hunting yet. I'm going to just kind of ease my way into saddle hunting. And so, uh, I got all the gear right in front of me here. They got some new sticks. They got, um, you know, so they have the climbing methods. They have the, the ropes, the harnesses, the, the saddle itself, the platforms and a whole bunch of other accessories. So if you're interested in uh, saddle hunting, go check out tethered, um, wasp archery first thing i'm going to do is just share the discount code while it's on my mind 20 percent off nfc20 and if you're not familiar with wasp archery you need to be wasp broadheads have not only been around for a long time but they are some of the most well-built best material broadheads on the market period and i and i can i feel confident because i have dabbled in other broadheads in the past I've always come back to Wasp, right? And and so when I decided, hey, I want to have this partnership with Wasp, why not uh, go approach a brand that I like? Again, participants in the space, lots of bow hunters who love to go slay, and so I just connect with them, right? So if you if you want one of the some of the best mechanicals or fixed blade broadheads on the market, you need to go check out WaspArchery.com NFC20 for twenty percent off Excalibur crossbows. 30 years in business and you don't stick around for 30 years if you put out a shitty product, right? So if you're looking for a crossbow that can get the job done and they have models for absolutely every every size of person, every need, uh, go check out ExcaliburCrossbow.com. Hunt stand, again, one of the best in the industry, period, right? These guys have a ton of um, functionality in their hunting app. It's, it's probably some of the most updated imagery and some of the most updated uh, functionality, right? So not only is it very affordable at only 30 bucks a year, but these guys are giving you so much more than just like, I, I feel like they should be charging more. And that I know that sounds bad, but I feel like they should be charging more with all the function, uh, all the functionality and content that they're offering with this app so if you want to find out more information about uh, all the benefits of hunt stand and how you can use it as scouting and hunting and documenting and journaling all of your hunts uh, and your time spent outside go visit huntstand.com vortex optics title sponsor this is a no-brainer these guys are serious about shooting and hunting and i've i've had the opportunity to meet several people here at vortex and uh, vortexoptics.com and not only do I know the people? But now I know a little bit uh, after my visit there, a little bit about the process. And there, this is a this is a no shortcuts company. These guys are putting out some of the best op- optics on the market. They're affordable for what you get, right? Very high quality, and at the same time, a, a support staff that will help you if you have any problems. And that's just a winning combination for me. So go check out vortexoptics.com. Love that company. Love the the motto and the culture surrounding that brand as well. And lastly, talk about participants. You want to talk about some guys who absolutely love to deer hunt. It's the guys over at Exodus, uh, well, not just trail cameras anymore, but Exodus Outdoor Gear. So if you are interested in uh, picking up a, a, a really good trail camera that works, and that's what I want, right? I don't, I don't give a shit about all the bells and whistles. I want my trail camera to take pictures when I'm not there. And Exodus does that. It's it's a workhorse. It's reliable. So ExodusOutdoorGear.com. And that's it.
I really appreciate you guys listening to the commercials, man. Um, let's get into today's episode with Kevin Martone. This is a hunter profile. Three, two, one. All right, back on the podcast with me today, Mr. Kevin Martone. Kevin, how are we doing, man? I'm doing good, Dan. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, absolutely. So first off, if you haven't checked out the 700th episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast that we did, I believe it was, was it last week? Uh, it was, yeah. Yeah, last week. Uh, Kevin was on to talk about mental health. And so we do- we dove into mental health. Uh, we talked uh, about how that connects to the outdoors and all, all the benefits there. So if you want to go check that out, I highly recommend it. But today we're going to talk a little bit more about Kevin, what he's doing, not only from the hunting side of it, but from the conservation side of it as well. Some pretty interesting and cool things. So um, Kevin, welcome back, man. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Yep. All right. So before we get started, um, I just, I usually don't eat breakfast. Okay. But today my kids begged me into making like not from scratch, but out of the box pancakes. Usually it's a frozen waffle in the toaster and that's what breakfast is. Maybe some eggs. This morning we did it big. Are you a big breakfast guy or do you kind of just like, usually I coast into lunch. No, I, I, I've got to put something in my stomach every morning. Um, you know, during the week, it's, I mean, a lot of times it's just a basic bowl of cereal, but sometimes I'll do eggs and pancakes and definitely weekends. I'm, I'm going bigger than that. So I, I've got to have food in my stomach. Yeah. So when yeah. you, do, when you do, when you do make your big breakfast, is, is it like a, I don't know, is it a, an event where you're doing bacon and eggs and pancakes and, and toast and the whole the whole thing or are you, I'm you doing the whole down. buffet you know uh i'm not doing i don't think i'm doing the hungry man but uh I, i'm certainly making a you know pretty pretty big size omelet and some bacon and you know things like that so i'm, I'm yeah. not i'm not shorting myself on calories in the morning yeah and i i i typically don't eat breakfast straight up mm-hmm. I, I i drink coffee until my heart feels like it's gonna jump out of my chest and then that's about it and that gets me to that gets me to lunch and so that's where that's where I, I start eating for the day. But, but um, man, I, I forgot, like, how much – it's been a while since I've had, a, a you know, a pancake. And, dude, I love pancakes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah and it's my, – my kids – when my daughters were younger, that was – you know, I was always making pancakes for them. Now that they're older now, it's, I'm, I'm sort of fending for myself. And uh, yeah. I don't have them as, as I used to. Yeah. Oh, pancakes. Pancakes and coffee. Now, if I was my grandpa, I would, I'd, I would have washed it down with a nice Salem cigarette. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right. I can, I can taste that in a diner right now. <laughs> exactly. I can remember back in the day where, you know, before all the smoking bans across yep. the United States, we would go yep. into this diner and my, my grandpa would, they would go, Hey, can I get an ashtray? And they'd bring you an ashtray to your table. And, oh, yeah. and it was just like coffee, cigarettes, just like the biggest, greasiest pile of bacon and uh, pancakes and eggs. And, and then they would go and work for 12 straight hours. Right. And I, dude, if you, if number one, if I even smoked a cigarette, I'd probably throw up right now. Right. And if I ate that kind of diet right now, I'd be like 280. Oh yeah, no, it's it, it, yeah, it's. <laughs> I remember many of those mornings that like, we'd go out. Even my grandfather and I would go fishing, and we'd we'd always hit a diner in the morning first, you know. And uh, it, that was exactly the scene. Yeah, you know? 
Yep. Uh, yeah. And so, so my grandparents used to live in a old farmhouse. All right. So my, my grandpa's passed away. My, uh, I only have one grandma left and, um, and that grandpa was a heavy smoker. He was the Salem cigarette smoker. And so uh-huh. we would go like whenever we would spend the night at their house. And I loved going there, um, except for the cigarette the cigarette smoke and things like that but what are you gonna do try to tell some old man like hey hey can you do me a favor and please stop smoking while i'm here and they'd be like they just laugh at you okay buddy whatever so so every time he would wake up in the middle of the night and he would go and uh uh he would go to his chair turn all the lights on in the living room me and my brother were asleep on a futon so of course we'd wake up he yeah. would he would run a train on two cigarettes just back to back like at uh-huh. like one in the morning and then go back to bed and so oh, yeah. and so uh so me every time i smell a cigarette that is the first image that flashes in my mind is me waking up from a just like a a sleeping stupor and rolling over and seeing my grandpa just in his boxer shorts just lighting up a cigarette right there and blowing it in the room and then going back to bed. <laughs> so, yeah, it's amazing how that gets locked in your memory. Exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. All right, uh, okay. So hard, hard pivot here from breakfast and smoking to deer hunting, all right? So we know you're, you, you used to be in the mental health field you're, and you're still in that in, in, in some respect, correct? Yeah. Okay, so, but we never really talked about the deer hunting where, where you grew up in Jersey and and where you live now in Massachusetts. So talk to us a little bit about growing up and hunting and, um, you know, that, that high population East coast vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah. Right. I mean, before, right. My career, right. I grew up hunting and fishing, um, uh, lived most of my life in Northwestern New Jersey, um, kind of on the border of, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York State. And and where I grew up was, I mean, New Jersey is a really densely urban, suburban state, but I grew up in farm country. My, my teacher, my parents were teachers, but I did grow up in farm country and, and grew up around some friends who, who hunted and had parents had hunted and started hunting when I was about 14. I got my bow license and, you know, it was just sort of sucked in, you know, from that moment and uh, spent, you know, many years through my teens and, and 20s and early thirties hunting, you know, in that Northwestern part of the state doing, I mean, everything from, you know, bow hunting to shotgun hunting and deer drives and sort of the old school, you know, way of hunting. And and New Jersey was, you know, if you follow New Jersey deer hunting, I mean, it's, it's a state that has a lot of deer in it, you know, not, not super world-class deer, but a lot of deer. And there were a lot of opportunities to, to, to hunt deer. And, you know, I grew up, my, my grandfather hunted a little bit. Some of my friends hunted a little bit, but was sort of self-taught myself with my friends. It was, it was hard in those initial years trying to figure out how to, how to just do it all from a hunting perspective. And uh, over time, you know, we, we pieced it together and learned how to shoot some deer. And as I got into my twenties, because New Jersey had a lot of deer and a lot of liberal um, bag limits and seasons, it was just an opportunity. I had lots of opportunities to shoot a lot of deer. Um, and that was just a lot of good um, training and practice and trial and error, frankly. Yeah. And then had taken my job up in Massachusetts and moved up to Massachusetts about 10 years ago. I had a had a start from scratch in terms of finding places to hunt and all those things. And uh, um, but again, still a very similar type of environment, you know, suburban area where you have pretty good deer densities and deer numbers, um, although it's a little bit different and tighter up here with um, uh, setbacks and where you can hunt and all those things. But uh, uh, similar hunting experiences. Gotcha. And and so do you know the time that 
there started to be be a shift in like because Pennsylvania, right, is one of the biggest hunting states in the nation and it has this huge hunting tradition and maybe it's a little bit different around the the city centers like pittsburgh and philly but Mm -hmm. uh, with you being out there was there a shift or could you notice a shift from when it was just like hey dude hunting is widely accepted to people slowly starting to creep in and, and want to put their opinions into hunting rules regulations that didn't have any business doing that uh you know i mean i definitely felt you know in the um for me i think in new jersey was probably the the late 90s where i mean i think people still very much generally supported hunting even if they didn't hunt but you had that suburban sprawl and land development that really sort of encroached into the areas um, I mean, the bag limits were pretty, still remain pretty liberal in the state because they just had so many deer and so many, you know, car interactions and all those things that they, people wanted the the deer herd managed. Um, uh, you know, the bear hunt might be a different story in New Jersey if you've ever followed those stories and the political, you know, side of that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but what happened was, you know, people wanted the deer managed because they were getting hit by cars and they were eating their shrubs, right? Right. Um but they didn't necessarily want you trouncing through their property, you know, too close to the property, shooting bows or guns. And that became some of the the balance there, you know. And so when I was in my, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, um, it wasn't so much of an issue. But as that suburban sprawl happened, it became much more of a, a tougher issue to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's where that's happening everywhere in every yeah. state. I mean, even here in Iowa, it's happening. So um, let's talk a little bit about the style right uh so mm-hmm. new jersey were you were you bouncing on public did you guys have access to private i mean did you have to deal with the the typical eastern pressure yeah yeah so a little bit of both we're doing public we're doing private um i did i did most of my bow hunting on private and you know when we got into the the firearm seasons um it was really hitting a lot of the public wildlife management areas and some of the federal properties um you know so it's definitely a balance Gotcha. And then um, did you start off with a gun and then transition to bow or did you go bow right away? No, I went bow right away um, and and hunted primarily with my bow from like 14 to, I don't know, 17 or 18. Then I got my firearms license and and that's when I started to do a little bit of shotgun hunting. But, you know, New Jersey, it was it was weird because, you know, I mean, this is something I learned over time. You know, the, the firearm season in New Jersey was predominantly the first week of December. And, um, and then they had opened up some liberal seasons after that with, um, doe permits and muzzleloader seasons and things like that. But, um, bow hunting was something that went, you know, from essentially September through the end of January in New Jersey. So it just provided so many more opportunities and, you know, I mean, going out and doing deer drives with the guys, um, you know, that week in December was fun, but you know, it it was, you know, it was sort of that mentality of it's Brown, it's down. Right. And. You know, what I found over the years was <clears throat> if you really wanted to get into good deer action and see bigger deer, you know, you wanted to hunt bow and you wanted to hunt during the rut. And, and that was all during the bow season, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't ever have the, the, the archery awakening, like what I call it when, when there's a guy who he, maybe he grew up hunting and or grew up hunting with guns right away. And someone talked to hey, man, you need to give bow hunting a try, you know? And then they go, they're like, Holy cow, bow hunting is awesome. Like I, I never want I never want to gun hunt again. It sounds like you, you were kind of the opposite. 
did I was, you, did, yeah. Did you ever get heavy then into guns and put the, the bow down, or was it always still, like, bow hunting still a staple for you? It was always it was always my main thing. I mean, it was nice, you know, especially if you're hunting hard between, like, September and early December with your bow. I mean, it was nice to get out there and walk around with the, with the shotgun and, and do that that type of hunting. Um, but I really just stuck with it, with it. Um, you know, I, 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 and it, ever since I moved up to Massachusetts, actually, I haven't hunted deer with a gun in Massachusetts since I've been up here. I've only, I've only hunted bow. Um, I've hunted small game with my shotgun, but deer hunting has always been with a bow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So have you hunted outside of the east side of the country i mean have you ever been to kansas or iowa illinois wisconsin anything like that so i um one time i had an opportunity to tag along with a good friend of mine on a trip in southwest texas um on on some property from a connection that he had so i did hunt south texas uh about four years ago gotcha Um, yeah and so that was just an amazing trip i mean totally different than northeast coast hunting for sure talk about that because I, i like I don't think a lot of people, I mean, you, you're, you're coming from all the content that, that I put out for the most part and for that, all these other main, let's just say podcasts or content providers, or even hunting shows, all that comes out of the the Midwest for the most part, maybe some Texas, but for the most part, it's, it's the Midwest because of the big deer and the, the complete difference. Talk to, and that's two sides of the spectrum, right? Texas is on a, on its own level. And so is like high pressured East coast. Talk about the the difference between those two. It was night and day. I mean, you know, in, in, in the Northeast and the East coast, you know, we're hunting a lot of hardwoods, um, you know, pressured deer, suburban deer. Um, and then all of a sudden you, you go to this place where it's very flat, no matter what you do, you're breathing in cactus, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, you're hunting, uh, Sendero's and I, I, I think I saw, you know, more deer there in the first hour than I had seen like in an entire season up in the Northeast. It's just, just totally different worlds. Yeah. Um, and it was something that it was, I mean, it was, what was really exciting to me was it was such a different experience, you know, it was, I mean, we hunted with rifles and that's not my first choice usually, but it was just such a different, unique experience that I just really enjoyed that trip. Yeah. I think anything new is exciting, right? Even if, even if let's say it wasn't your weapon of choice, it was the experience though, that was like, Hey man, this is new. Anything could happen. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I was, I was sort of, you know, I mean, there's big, big antler deer down there. And I, I was really there to be part of a coal hunt. Right. So, but even still, you know, I mean, some of the coal deer were pretty good deer um, compared to what I generally see up here. Um, you know, and it was just even, even the size of the deer, you know, very small compared to some of the Northeast deer, which can get pretty heavy. And um, just the style of hunting and learning from the guys that, you know, how they do it down there was just a whole unique experience. And, um, you know, I, I saw that as really a once in a lifetime opportunity. I won't forget that one for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I've been down to Texas and, and it's completely different. And I was down in, there in the, the, the land of high fences. Uh, okay. around that San Antonio. I believe I flew into San Antonio. Um, and, you know, you, you're driving down these blacktops and it's just high fences on each side. And we went down there for a media hunt to shoot exotics. And uh-huh. so it was a, it was a, a, 
an eye-opening experience that I'm glad I, I did and I went. Will I ever do it again? I don't know. I can't say yes or no, but I will sure. say that um, uh, it was it was different and it was fun because I was around some cool people, man. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it, it, it's like you said, it's the experience. I mean, there's other experiences that I'd like to try. Um, you know, I'm sort of like, once I can get my girls through college, I feel like I can open up some time to get out there and do some other things. But uh, uh, yeah, great trip. Yeah. So kind of hyper-focusing now on the East Coast, is there a difference between uh, Jersey and Mass? You know, not so much. Um, I think it's uh, at least, you know, each state has some similar, you know, geography and topography. You know, you've got some areas that are just really hardwoods, you know, some areas that have a little bit of ag mixed in, you know, deer population numbers are similar. I mean, some of the hunting rules and regulations are a little bit different. Um, you know, um, size of deer, I found a little bit bigger up here in Massachusetts than New Jersey. Um, but that's about it. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about, you've, you've mentioned the quantity of deer and Mm -hmm. when I was out in now, I granted, I didn't get out into the farm country of Pennsylvania, but on the East coast near, near Philly and around, uh, I think I popped into New Jersey for a little bit. I did see lots of deer. I mean, lots of urban and I just, I guess if you want to call it like not necessarily urban deer, but not necessarily farm country, like that, that transition of bigger lots with homes on them, you know, maybe, maybe small working farms, but not necessarily farm country. And to the point where I could see, you could look into the woods and you could see the browse line. Yeah. Right. So many deer that you could see the browse line. Um, talk to talk to us a little bit about you know what your experience is with quality of bucks and the population. Uh, I guess in general. Yeah, in, in Jersey or Mass or both. Or, yeah, anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely you get these pockets, and, and like, well, I mean, in Massachusetts, for instance, I mean, it's almost like two different stories. You know, if you live in east of the 495 corridor, which is really kind of getting into, I don't know, maybe a radius of 50 miles outside of Boston, you have a really sizable deer population. And in in the western two-thirds of the state, where it gets to be more more rural and, and heavily wooded, um, you know, the guys out there talk about how they, they see very, very few deer, right? And it's much harder to come by out there. Um, but when you have the more, you know, dense areas of, of deer, um, you know, there's those stresses on the deer. I mean, I'm not a biologist, right, but it's sort of from what I read and, you know, where you see those browse lines. I see it in my, my own property where I live, where the deer come through at night and, and just hammer things, um, you know. And, you know, sometimes I think you see that again, you know, I don't have a perspective of Iowa or things like that, but you can see some of these deer where sometimes they're lighter um, in terms of body weight and um, their antler development, you know, you might come across a, you know, a deer that weighs 200 pounds in Massachusetts and, and some of the, like some of the areas just genetically, they get big because it's a little bit colder climate. Um, but their antler development, you know, is, is stunted. So you might hit a four or five year old deer that has a pretty good sized body, but it maybe it scores, you know, 115 inches or 120 inches. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so that all plays out. And that was definitely my experience in New Jersey as well. So what out there, what is, what do people talk about? 
like, oh man, that's a big deer. Did you hear so-and-so shot a big deer? What's, what's that where you hunt? Well, it's, it's interesting because if you look at in, in Massachusetts, some of the deer that come out of the state, there are some slammers. I mean, you see some deer that are coming out in the one seventies and one eighties. I mean, it's not regular, right? Um, you know, I shot a, I shot a good one a couple of years ago that I, you know, I green scored at like, a, it was like 160 and five eighths or something out of mass. Uh, out of mass. Okay. Um, last year I took an eight pointer that was probably about 135 inches. That was like a really good deer. Like, so if you, sh- I think generally, like if you're shooting a, you know, 130 inch deer, 140 inch deer, that's, that's big for Massachusetts. I mean, there's definitely some slammers that come out bigger than that for sure. If you look at some of the, the social media sites, but you know, um, a lot of the guys that I know, you know, if they're, if they're shooting the 115 inch, 120 inch, they are really happy with that deer. Yeah. And I know this is kind of the opposite direction, but and and maybe i don't know what the story is with maryland but it seems like as far as the east coast is concerned maryland and that that massachusetts i don't know and i've even i think i've even talked to a guy from connecticut you know uh-huh. those those states can produce some really good deer absolutely yeah yeah absolutely. so um when did you shoot that 160 on private or public private private ground okay all right yeah. was this a farm that was managed i mean was it a lease you know yeah this this is on the property that we'll probably talk about that that i i manage a deer management program okay on. um and so it's um it's a pretty big it's a pretty big private piece of land that, that covers about two thousand acres actually um and has lots of lots of hikers on it and things like that but it's got a a controlled number of hunters on it. So it's, you know, it's a controlled hunt. Um, but there's a lot of space to, to hunt and the deer have a lot of space. They're not necessarily backing up into people's backyards. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. So, um, is, so on this piece of property, uh, let's, let's just kind of break it down a little bit. Cause I, I want to, I, I want to slowly transition from the deer hunting, uh, one second, let me even back up just a, a little bit before we get into the, the details of the property. Yep. From a strategy standpoint, okay, mm-hmm. um, on and you can use specific deer hunts as an example. Um, walk us through your annual strategy: how you approach deer hunting, uh, deer hunting, how you end a season, how you get back into it, and just kind of the whole year high level. Yeah, it, I mean it, it's circular, right? It just it doesn't ever really stop for me. Um, so if we start if we start at the end of the season when it ends in December here. You know, January, February, March, I'm out there scouting and really trying to rethink what I did wrong the prior year, fine tune some sets, really trying to look at, you know, previous year's sign and all of those things, you know, looking for, you know, some of those bigger, you know, core breeding scrapes and, and, and topography and all those things. And so, you know, I may pick some new locations or fine tune some sets, you know, early at that January, February, March period of time. And I'll, I'll generally have some of my sets nailed down most of my sets nailed down, um, by March or April for that following season. Okay. Uh, you know, and then during the se- during the summer months, you know, it's just, you know, maybe I got some trail cameras out. I look at some trail cameras periodically and, and things like that, you know, as I get into the fall. Um, and then during the hunting season itself, you know, I'll, you know, I'll sort of work those sets that I have. I generally run about 15 sets, um, in the area that I hunt predominantly. Um, and then I have, you know, I have a mobile set that, you know, when I feel like I need to get mobile because it's not coming together, I'll, I'll go mobile in those areas too. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So there's there, a lot of strategy and, and hopefully a lot of luck that comes into it. You know, <laughs> do you do, do you do a lot of early season hunting or do you kind of just focus on the, the rut? 
No, you know, I do. I mean, part of it is, um, you know, with some of the, the, the deer management program that I, that I coordinate, you know, it's also about getting does down and things like that. So early season, um, I, I will try to get out early and, and take a doe or two. Um, you know, but if I can get on a buck early season, I will definitely try to zero in on that. But I, I haven't been overly successful there. I've tended to you know, that, that focus in on those last that last week of October through November for the most part. Gotcha. Okay. Talk a little bit about the the terrain that you hunt. Yeah. So you know, it's um, it's it's a lot of wooded area. It's definitely wooded. The, the one piece that I hunt, um, it, you would think it, I mean, in Eastern Massachusetts, just given the property that, that I hunt on, you would think it hunts like big woods, right? It's a lot of, lot of woods, not a lot of ag. There's a couple of overgrown, um, you know, fields from year, years and years ago. Um, you know, it's not super high elevation, you know, East coast it's, you know, we're, we're close to the water. So, you know, I think our maximum elevation in this one area hunt is probably four or 500 feet. Um, but it's, it's, it can be a little bit rugged and even, and, and even within those modest elevation changes, there is a lot of, um, topography and I do, I really focus on that topography when I'm, when I'm narrowing down, uh, my hunting strategies and, and, you know, it's got some, it's got some high, high areas, um, ridges, lots of ridges. It's got a lot of marshy area too. Um, you know, and so all that comes into play when I'm thinking about strategy. The interesting thing about the property is I would love to hunt some of the the marshier areas on that property more so. But what I found is in this one area that we hunt, a lot of the hiking trails are right along all those marshy areas. And so there might be some deer that are bedding in those marshes, but it gets a lot of hiker traffic during the day. It's just not, you know, something you really want to enjoy hunting when you've got hikers moving past you within 50 or 75 yards, you know? Yeah. I, I talked to a guy, God dang, I forget what state it was. It was out East. It might've been, either, it was either Maryland or Massachusetts, I think. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me he hunts a, uh, a public piece that he, he has to use hiking trails to get to a spot and then he'll pull off where a hiking trail meets a marsh and he'll follow the the opposite side because one edge is the hiking trail and the other edge uh, of the of the marsh where it creates that edge is the deer movement. So that's where yeah. that's where he kind of flows into as well. So it sounds like it's kind of a it, it's a thing. I mean, obviously, edge is where you'll find you'll find deer, but these these wet areas are kind of where they're where they're hanging out. Yeah, absolutely. And you can use it to your advantage, you know. I mean, the deer are going to avoid the traffic. So at least, you know, you got one half of the marsh that it's not going to be a lot of pressure, you know, and you can focus in your strategies there. Yeah. So yeah. we we hear about deer getting spooked in high pressure scenarios. But when that pressure is consistently, let's just say, not a threat, like hikers, right? Mm-hmm. Like is the deer behavior different in those scenarios where they they don't just blow out of there and run like crazy they'll stare at you for a while and then they may just kind of work their way off or are they blowing out like crazy it depends i mean they they definitely have a comfort zone with with the number of you know people that are out there right i i i look at it as i think they just adapt And, and what i found in this one area is the deer are more likely to show themselves during daylight in the morning hours, right? So you figure, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the morning, you know, that's when there's very few hikers out there, right? But, you know, three, four o'clock in the afternoon, that's when there, there are more hikers. And so what I found in the area that I hunt, the deer tend to be harder to hunt in the afternoons because they've just adapted to that hiker pressure. 
Whereas in the mornings, they're just used to not not many hikers being in the woods. And I, I've, I've tended to have more of my success hunting mornings in this in this area. Gotcha. Okay, cool. All right, so we talked about the terrain. Now let's talk about this project. Let's see. Yeah, we're about 30 minutes in here. Let's talk about this project and this land that you manage. Now, I got to make sure I get the, the wording right here. Uh, <laughs> you work for a nonprofit organization that owns lots of land <laughs> is, yeah. is essentially yeah. what we came up with. Yeah. Um, elaborate on that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, given the deer density problems in the, in the state, you know, this, this nonprofit group that owns land in, in the state um, was really trying to you know, really struggling with some of the deer um, destruction issues on the on the property. And um, they, you know, have biologists on staff and um, really at some point, you know, about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less than that, um, really felt that they needed to incorporate hunting into their strategy to try to bring the, the deer numbers down. They had they had done some work with um, with uh, some of the state agencies, the state fish and game agency to understand the deer numbers and the, and the deer um, uh, impact on the land and, um, have, you know, since sort of worked with the biologist to try to, you know, get numbers down into a reasonable, you know, target given the carrying capacity issues for the land. And so um, I had I had sort of stumbled upon getting access to hunt the property several years ago. And then they asked me to be the it's, it's a really a volunteer role just to help to be the, the program coordinator for the hunting side of it. Um, and I, and I basically work with <clears throat> basically pull some hunters into the program um, who've been sort of cleared by the group. You know, they want to make sure they're not going to, you know, a group of yahoos in there. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, that, that can really, um, you know, use bow hunting as a tool to help bring, you know, so, to, to help regenerate the, 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 uh, the habitat, essentially. Gotcha. So working around some of the wording here, the this nonprofit, right? Mm-hmm. Typically you don't associate with this nonprofit with any type of hunting, right? It's uh, more, uh, I think the term we, we used was fur huggers, right? People who, <laughs> so what, how does an organization, how does this nonprofit organization, um, intra, you know, what's the conversation look like to introduce hunting onto this landscape for the betterment of all of these animals with someone who, traditionally has not associated with any type of hunting yeah yeah no it's a great question right and it's i mean let's take i mean almost sort of some level setting i think what i've found right and i think some of the research generally supports this is that you know obviously we know not everybody hunts right a lot there's the, the minority of people in this country hunt but most people support hunting right they understand that people are using hunting you know for food and, and conservation means and things like that so and, and then when you I think when you have a group like this who's thinking about trying to, you know, conserve the land, I mean, many of the members who, who you know, go hiking there and participate in activities there, you know, understand the need to preserve the land. Right. I mean, that's why this group in, in general buys and purchases land to preserve the land and, and, and all those things. And then so when you sort of then get into the next step of it, we've got a we've got a problem here on our property. Um, because it's you know, the, the deer are destroying the habitat. It's impacting the you know, the foliage and all the plant species, as well as other animal species ability to, to breed and reproduce on that. And you start to bring the science into it. People, I think, are generally open to that. Um, not everybody, obviously. And a lot of some people will go down the path of let's go towards, you know, deer contraception and things like that. But then when you start to when it, when you start to explain all that to folks and how hard that is and how costly that is, 
um, you know, at the same time with hunting being an effective strategy and a safe strategy, the argument is made and, and, and generally people understand it and buy into it. Um, and that's sort of how we've navigated it, um, you know, in this property. Is this an archery only property or is this, are firearms included in this? Archer, archery only. Um, you know, there's been some conversations over the years about, you know, moving, you know, using shotguns or, or muzzleloaders in it. But we, we, we really sort of thought about it, you know, in the, in the environment that we're in and in, in eastern Massachusetts, we felt, you know, the bow hunting strategy was really effective, safe. It, 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 um, it felt better politically than to, you know, the perceptions of that folks may have with bringing a bunch of folks in with guns to, to nail down the, the deer herd. Um, so, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can see if you're going to ease into something, archery would be a little bit less of a threat for some reason than, mm-hmm. than gun hunting, right? Yeah. Just it's because it's the word gun. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's been successful. You know, there's been, you know, the, the, the and if anything, I think, you know, the hikers, many of the hikers that we, we see out there um, are interested, you know, Hey, how's it going? How, how's the program going? How are you doing? Um, you know, and, and, um, you know, hopefully over time, you know, and with the, with the group doing some research on the effectiveness of, of the program, you know, start to see some of the habitat regenerate, um, you know, it, it, it just tells a good story. Right. So how far into this hunting experiment are you on this piece? Um, it's been, I think we're in uh, year six now. Okay. All right. So um, yeah. has it had the impact that you thought it was, would well, I think it's slow, right? I think, um, you know, the biologists are looking at it over time, right? So, I mean, you know, even if you just look at like, uh, you know, small bushes and saplings, they take years to grow, right? But they're looking at, you know, they literally look at the buds in, in, in certain areas through trail cam surveys and trying to understand, you know, are, are they seeing more growth? And that takes a little bit of time. But from like a numbers perspective, you know, we are um, taking, we, we take about 25 deer a year off of the property. And, um, you know, I think that that balance seems to be, um, you know, where the, the biologists are looking at it as, yeah, right, we're making some progress. Um, you know, sometimes they would like to see some more harvesting. Um, but at the same time, it's sometimes it's hard to push those numbers up when you're trying to find the right balance of the number of hunters, the number of hikers and all those things out there. Okay. Um, you know, we also know that there's going to there are some, you know, there's going to be some deer also that are hit by cars in the area. There's a pretty healthy coyote population on the property, so we know they're taking some fawns too every every spring. But um, it's the combination of that approach. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned coyotes. Are you guys doing any predator control on this property as well? No. Um, and and some of the thinking on that is, um, I mean, yeah, we we, I mean, from the hunter's perspective, right? From a selfish perspective, we'd like to see more deer and less less maybe less coyotes. But you know, from an ecology perspective, um, the coyotes are part of the deer management program. Yeah. You know, in terms of you know numbers down. Yeah. So you, you have this, this, uh, natural selection in a way, and then you also have the selection from the hunting side of it. So, and I, I always right. thought that, you know, the predator prey balance, I mean, it was ruined the second the man, like the white man came into this country, right. And started yeah. killing everything. Mm-hmm. Right. So coming, coming back and trying to find a balance on that is damn near impossible. So obviously we, we have to continue to, uh, you know, I guess make up for our mistakes and that's a constant battle now. But yeah. I always, I always thought that the guy who wanted every single coyote and every single bobcat off his property 
was a bit overkill because yeah. I feel like predators have their place in the ecosystem as well. Sure. Right. Like I'll, I'll why, I mean, it's, I mean, there are, there are lots of coyotes around. I see them all the time. Um, but we also have lots of deer, you know, and, you know, I look at some of the, you know, if I watch a TV show or, you know, some of the coyote hunting shows or read some stuff on coyotes in, in other parts of the country, they, they almost seem overrun. Um, and you can understand, you know, trying to rein that population in. But I, I mean, I'm not, I'm a, no coyote hunting expert, but it just seems like really, really hard to get under control. Um, however you approach it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So you got this, this property, what other types of management other than just introducing hunting into it are you doing like uh hinge cutting or or other type of habitat work you know not much i mean they're they 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 are doing some you know um uh i mean i mean there's some they don't really do logging on the property um you know i've had some conversation with them about doing some burning um you know i've done in a previous life, I did some work for forest fire. And so, you know, certainly saw the benefits of, of burning, um, you know, and they haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they sort of, what's the course of action they take in, on top of the deer management program going forward. Yeah. Okay. So, so far, let's talk about like positive negatives. You introduce hunting into this piece of property you and the other people who are, are partaking in this little experiment, um, you're documenting everything. The biologists are keeping tabs on, on the deer population and, and, and basically this collection of data, right? Mm-hmm. How is that then being transferred or um, relayed to this nonprofit organization that actually owns the land? And, yeah. and how, what's that conversation look like from your guys who obviously sees the benefits to the rest of the people who are non hunters, but also members of this nonprofit? Yeah. 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 No, that's a good question. So, I mean, we, we, it's, um, you know, the biologists and folks that are, you know, are, are, are in constant communication, you know, with essentially the, you know, they're part of the nonprofit essentially. So, it's very much worked into their, their, their operations, you know, now in terms of thinking about, you know, the land and, and the environment um, on the property. Yeah. So we're, we, we, and, and, and we have a lot of interaction with them, uh, you know, on the hunting perspective. Right. So like you said, we share, we share field reports with them, you know, in writing, um, you know, we, they, they have their own trail camera surveys going, but we also obviously use trail cams and we share information with them on, you know, what we're seeing, you know, how many unique different bucks are we seeing, What's the, you know, what kinds of fawn um, uh, numbers are we seeing, you know, each season, um, you know, and then they, that sort of feeds into their information in terms of ultimately trying to understand, you know, what's the deer density on the property and is that changing? But then, you know, they're taking that step further in terms of trying to look at over time the ecology of the of the just the forest, essentially. And, you know, we've had some I mean, they, we've had some conversations then about how do we sort of continue that education you know, with the members so that they can start to see, you know, cause some of that, some of that change that you see is really slow, right? I mean, if you see, you know, a new oak tree that is, you know, beginning to grow, um, you know, because your deer numbers are down, you know, your average hiker is not going to see that on a daily basis or a yearly basis. Cause it's so slow, that transformation slow, um, you know, but it all comes into that, that part of that story. Um, and, 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 you know, th- this group, 
owns you know, other properties, you know, throughout the state. And so as they're learning on this, which is sort of the flagship property for us to for us to do the work on, and, you know, they've started to then because of the success of the program, start to share it um, or open it in other properties that they own. Um, so they, you know, they've you can see it. They've they've committed to the to the the concept of hunting as a strategy. Okay, cool. Now, when will this? Okay, so this nonprofit. When will like a, a big announcement be made to all of the entire? Like, I don't know. Is there a plan to where? this information is going to become public with all the members of this nonprofit? Well, I think, I think what they're, what they will do is that some of the research goes forward, they'll issue reports on the progress of the project. Right. And, and they'll make those reports available to members. So I don't think there's going to be a big splash announcement. Right. But I think it's going to be just sort of generally rolling out their, the overall success or failure of the program. Maybe it ultimately doesn't work, but um, you know, rolling out information to the members through some of the research reports that they're, that they're conducting. And okay. it's just, general, and it's information out to the field, right? Because so, you know, when you think about, you know, if there's a, a study or a report that comes out from, you know, one area that talks about deer management and its success, you know, other folks in other states, even who are thinking about doing these things can learn from that information. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what it sounds like. It sounds like you guys had the ability to talk in some specific decision makers into allowing you to hunt on this property for the deer management side of things. Correct. But the, the rest of the general, I guess you want to call the general population of this nonprofit doesn't know about it. Is this, is this something you're trying to keep under wraps or because I have this feeling like, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm thinking out loud here, but this, this nonprofit that has these potential, I don't know, these these fur hugger type people in it, right? I don't want to see animals get hurt, blah, blah, blah. If they found out about what's going on on a piece of property that they are part of, it might have a huge swing in this negative direction. Yeah. No, no, it's not keeping on wraps. And I think, you know, the membership, the membership knows about the program. Right? Okay. And, and okay. The, yeah, and, they, and they've gotten, you know, the, 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 the nonprofit sort of gotten over that hump of, you know, they've navigated it, right? When they were first talking about the program with the membership, you know, there was some pushback from folks, but ultimately they, they were able to make the, you know, the scientific argument and, you know, it's a nonprofit, they own the property. So they ultimately, they made the decision. This is the pro, this is the path that we're moving down. I think the one thing we want to try to always be, you know, particularly in, a, in, in urban suburban areas is um, politically sensitive, you know, to the different, different thoughts about it. Right. And I think like, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, you can, most people generally support hunting, right. Yeah. Uh, even though they don't hunt. Um, and it's just trying to find that balance, um, you know, uh, because the fear is right. Um, it's, it's trying to contain public perception. Right. Um, and sometimes hunters get a bad rap, you know, um, about, you know, who they are politically or what they do and how they hunt and they're only out for trophy hunting and things like that. And so it's just trying to navigate those conversations, um, you know, and put in a potentially politically charged uh, situation. Um, and but it's but it's it's been it's been a success. Um, and and as a result of it, they've been op- they've been able to open up a couple other properties, too. And, uh, you know, so that that's all good. Yeah. So what's the now kind of backing up into the hunters, right? They're out there. They're getting to see the landscape 
uh, maybe even see it change throughout this six year period. Uh, like mm-hmm. you mentioned, um, what are the, what does the biologist take away from you guys when making decisions on how to tweak this management process? Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, our, our field reports are really helpful to them in terms of what we're seeing, where we're seeing deer. You know, sometimes it even comes down to, hey, we're seeing lots of deer in one area that gets really heavy hiking traffic. And we might say, can we can like we make a real concerted effort to close down this section of trails for a couple of weeks for us to maybe get into that spot and, and try to hit some deer. Um, but, you know, then, you know, as they start to gain more information about the program and sort of the the uh, impact to the the uh, the property and, and, and the forest, you know, there's been some conversations about, well, hey, you know, can you it might be good to, you know, if we hit a slow year, you know, hey, can you add a couple of hunters to the program so that we can try to increase the harvest? And that's a balance, right? Because one of the things that I try to do in managing the, the deer hunting side of it is because, right, you can you can appreciate, you know, if we throw, you know, 100 hunters into the program, that added pressure to the deer is going to make them whatever, maybe be more nocturnal or hide in other parts of the property. So it's trying to find the right number of hunters, giving them sufficient space to hunt enjoy the hunt um and you know um get shoot enough deer to sort of hit program goals without over pressuring a deer that our numbers actually go down you know um and so it's that ongoing conversation you know with them hey man that's a good thing right this and and i think this is where maybe as a whole right if we look at hunting as a whole I feel like our communication to the rest of the world could be better, right? Especially when it, we come to people who are not necessarily anti-hunters, but that th- those line walkers that are, yeah, I really don't care versus I'd rather not, you know, not a hard no, but yeah, just, uh, I'm not so sure. I'd, I'd rather not to get them to come over and be like, yeah, okay, cool. And I think it's the communication and the data and how we present that to a larger group of people that would number one work in our favor. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. And even when, you know, there's, uh, I mean, in Massachusetts, even in New Jersey, you know, there's these controlled hunts in some of these suburban areas. Um, you know, there's a couple of um, pretty well-known controlled hunts in, in, in Massachusetts out by uh, Quabbin Reservoir and the Blue Hills area, which is actually pretty close to me, which is uh, some, some state-owned land. You know, and over time, you know, the state was able to make that argument that, you know, from a scientific perspective, there were lots of wins um, and, you know, make the point that hunters were also, you know, using the deer for, for food and, and all of those things. And, um you know, that backlash is always going to be there. It really is. But, you know, you can you can navigate it. And I think, you know, most people generally, you know, come around and understand it, you know. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So anything else cool or interesting on uh, on this piece that you help kind of manage? Well, I mean, that that's really it there. I mean, I yeah, sort of uh, I mean, it's I, it's funny because I I we talked, I think, a little bit in the last podcast, you know, sort of what you do for in your professional lives. But I think we always sort of think about, you know, our, our, the way of life. It's you know, hunting sort of a way of life. And, yeah. and um, you know, it's like that's sort of what I do for in my in all my free time. And, and um, you know, I even have an opportunity to uh, write a, a column for a good friend of mine's magazine um, that also sort of it, it, it really sort of focuses on 
you know, rural America. And, and um, but I sort of, and it's sort of towards an audience that, you know, is engaged in hunting and fishing, but also travels a lot. And the, the magazine sort of highlights all these, these, these neat stories in, in, in areas of the country. And the column I write is a perspective column on trying to sort of navigate, um, you know, all those things that people are doing in their lives or busy lives. And I always try to thread in its uh, hunting and fishing angle to that um, in every column I write. The magazine's Porch Prairie. Uh, magazine and uh, it's like another one of those things where I just try to in my life try to sort of stay grounded by you know just sort of um, engaging in those hunting and out, the, out and fishing and outdoor lifestyle activities that are that are important to me yeah I feel you cool man yeah. well um, any big plans for this fall yeah no I mean it's I think this fall I mean last fall I had the opportunity to do some pheasant hunting in South Dakota um, and I think this year for the most part it's really just focusing in on Massachusetts I've got a there's a couple of bucks that I have to uh, uh, hopefully um, have an encounter with this fall I'm really sort of working hard on on thinking about that and uh, you know that's that's the goal this fall awesome man well yeah. first off good luck hopefully you slay and then uh, second man keep fighting the good fight when it comes to you know uh you know i know you're the actual hunter on this property so you get a benefit directly from that but at the same time all the data and communication that goes out to people who are not hunters right so that's a win as well so uh, appreciate that and uh, good luck this fall man great dan same to you and there you have it ladies and gentlemen huge shout out to kevin man really appreciate your time huge shout out to tethered wasp excalibur hunt stand vortex exodus please go out and support the companies that support this podcast at least go check their websites out do me a favor check them out you know really really good brands and uh what else i think i'll keep it short man it's all about them good vibes summertime spend some time with the with the people that you love and that you like hanging out with and 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 uh i think the motto for this this summer is going to be trim the bullshit and what i mean by that is there's a whole bunch of things in this world that just aren't important right it, it i call it bullshit trim it put it to the side maybe go back to it if it's if it's somewhat important to you but i think if you put it to the side for long enough you'll realize how much you don't need it and then you can go spend all that energy on other things that are that you like and that you're passionate about like family friends and if you're passionate about hunting maybe it's going to give you the opportunity to do more of that so uh good vibes in good vibes out wear your safety harness and we'll definitely talk to you next time